Hey everyone, back again. Alright, let's continue on now with chapter 3 and 4 from part 2 from Heidegger's Being in Time. If you're new here, what are you doing? Go and check out all the previous episodes. If you like what I do, you can like, share, subscribe. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but take care of yourselves first. And yeah, not much more reason to chat through that. Uh, let's jump into chapter 3 from part 2, titled The Authentic Potentiality for Being a whole of Dasein, and temporality is the ontological meaning of care. So from last episode, we just talked about integrating death into the equation as a sign of Dasein's wholeness, you know, that endpoint. And then Dasein is resolute in its awareness of that end and being like, oh, well, I better live my life the best I can. Otherwise, you know, it's going to end one day. So we still haven't really talked about temporality yet, even though that's the title of this whole part, which isn't not knocking Heidegger here. We're, we're going to get to it. We're going to talk about temporality. So now he wants to lay out his method. And I find <laughs> if you read the like when I was reading this, you know, I get 300 pages in and it's like, okay, now we're going to lay out the method. And I just, I just, my head falls on the table. Like, my God. But he wants to use this method to show how resoluteness or how resoluteness's anticipatory disposition can be united with an analysis of temporality. So you remember, we anticipate that death when we are aware of it and we change ourselves like to adapt to that possibility, we are resolute or Dasein is resolute. How does this connect though with temporality? Because we need it, according to Heidegger, we need to understand temporality in order to actually get at the structural whole of Dasein. It's fundamental ontology. Now, it's important to clarify that by resoluteness, it's not like, oh, now I've found my true identity, my true face, in the face of death. That's not the point. The point is rather the exact opposite, that to be resolute means that you are always going to be embracing possibility. And that might mean you change a lot. The opposite, being irresolute, means that you have just submitted to the orders of the they, of the world that you are a part of, and you, you lack an identity. That is the person who is rigid. They're not, they don't change. They just do the same thing over and over and over again, and that's, that's the life that they live. Which is, it really, it's impossible. But I'd say there's like a spectrum going on here, like closer to being irresolute versus resolute. I wouldn't say it's like, the flip of like a light switch where it's like one day I'm resolute because even those people who are submitted to the they in the most traditional sense, whatever that looks like, um, they're, they're still walking through the world and making decisions. It's not like they're totally being determined before any action they make. So I think it's important to kind of hold on to that as more of like a spectrum. So anticipatory resoluteness is the understanding that follows the call of conscience and that faces or or then uh, faces for death the possibility or in death the possibility of gaining power over the existence of Dasein. So it is when facing death, confronting it, that there's power to be gained here over uh, Dasein in existence. So the point is not to bracket off the real world here, that should be clear by now, uh, but instead to acknowledge its relationship with Dasein. Dasein is intimately bound up with the world. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we simply presuppose being or just posit the world existing out there. The world is not just out there for us. We construct that world. We construct many different worlds, as a matter of fact. Instead, it means taking the world as a pathway towards something deeper that conditions that very world itself. So the world isn't just out there, and we aren't these like neutral, just like robotic experience machines that enter the world and that just like absorb it and take it in and adapt to it. We're a lot more than that. But if this appears kind of circular, that's okay. That's what Heidegger is kind of pointing to or implying. That is the circular or the part that might appear circular is when he says that the world can be seen as a pathway towards something deeper that essentially conditions that world. So the world is a site by which to understand the thing that creates the world. And so you have this kind of endless loop of possible like a uh, investigative path to know what's going on here. Now, Heidegger doesn't want us to just kind of dupe ourselves with our with with like a kind of worldliness or a worldless eye, like an idea that we just fall into the world without a world, that we come from non-world into world, as though we just like we, we have no understanding of it in the first place. Because it should be clear by now that Dasein has an innate primordial understanding of world and what it means to adapt to a world. So we are not just this worldless eye that falls into the world. Rather, we must account for the very existence of being together with others and how that is an absolutely necessary condition of Dasein and of being. And just as that, we have to account for the role of both life and death along this continuum. Now he considers, in order to understand this, really the place of the self and the I. Now for Kant, prior to Heidegger, of course, the I was only a moment of conscience. That is a transcendental subject of, uh, of thoughts. So the I for Kant is a moment of thinking. The same with Descartes in a lot of ways. So Rene, De, so someone was like, why do you pronounce it? Why do you pronounce Descartes, Descartes? And I was like, okay, Descartes. Um, but Descartes does the same thing where Descartes is like, well, God, I hate saying it like that. Where Descartes is like, uh, well, the only thing we can be sure of is our own mind, right? To put it simply, I think therefore I am means that I can doubt everything. I can doubt the counter, the wall, my friends, my own body, the world. I can doubt all of that, but you cannot doubt your own mind. The reason for that is because it takes doubt to doubt. And you can't doubt away doubt because you're always going to be doubting, which means your mind is always working. That's how you prove the existence of the mind, apparently. So for Kant, this I makes up our subject. For Kant, it's like a similar thing. If you read the Critique of Pure Reason, Kant is just laying out these, like, schematizing all of the different kind of analytic faculties that make cognition and make experience possible. So we are just kind of these thinking beings at the end. We are just these robotic like minds at the end of the day for Kant. Or in other words, for Kant, the world doesn't just exist out there. So kind of like Heidegger, the world is actually like created in our minds for Kant, where, you know, if I touch, if, you know, you touch your own leg or touch your own arm or whatever, um, in that moment, you aren't actually touching your arm. You know, you're 
brain <laughs> it's a really funny experiment because you you're touching something and then your senses pick up that thing and send data to your brain and then your brain kind of codes that data makes sense of it and then sends uh, stimulation back and tells you what you're supposed to feel so i actually have no idea what my arm feels like i just know what it feels like by what my brain has told me but to like a dog or another species it might feel to or another human for that matter it might feel totally different totally different so in that way for for kant we are just these kind of experience robots in our minds there's more to it than that but just to be uh, quite simple about it so heidegger thinks that kant conflates the i as essentially subjective expression with ontological fact of i as only sameness and constancy of something always already objectively present. So the furthest Kant would take his own ontology was to posit the I as an expression of the mind, and therefore is always I think, not just I. So we have to ask, and we can find actually within Indian uh, philosophy, like uh, in the in the Vedic in the Vedic tradition, like examples of uh, people asking this question, like who says I am? What is the thing that says I am? Maybe one way to think about it simply is like the self that exists under the I am. What is saying that I am, this self? Is the self the same as the I? But for Kant here, at least that Heidegger is pointing, calling our attention to, for Kant it's just an, a demonstration of a thinking being. That is what the I is for Kant. That is how your subjectivity, subjective, your self is constructed. So Heidegger asks, think what though? Like, what does it mean to think and then that be a sign of one's own humanness, one's own subjectivity? Heidegger asks, think what? Like, what do you have to think? Kant too readily brackets off the world and in thinking something that would imply a world, Kant seems all too ready to do away with the world, which might, if anyone's read Kant, you might be like, no, that's not true. And it's not true. And that's not what Heidegger is saying. Heidegger is saying that for Kant, the world just kind of appears out there for us, created by us. Whereas, remember for Heidegger, creating worlds has nothing to do with just neutrally experiencing the world out there and different having different experiences of it. It is instead a matter of creation. To be a part of a world means to bring things close, to de-distance, to de-spatialize, not to just see things neutrally out there in space. And by neutrally, I don't mean seeing them as they are, but just experiencing neutrally. And then we all have the, you know, a different neutral uh, mode of experience. Now, when we actually account for a world in which our I, our self, is wrapped up, we have to ask, though, is this I our own or has it been given to us by the they? The they has to be one... Really, if you haven't already, try saying that and just like casually sleep. Because I often say it and I'm like, I didn't think about it beforehand. I'm just like the day, like the rural juror. So selfhood is only truly found in the authenticity of the being of Dasein as care. This self is characterized by constancy of the self itself which is counter to the unself constancy of the irresolute, sorry, falling prey. So the self that we have 
any real demonstration of the individual self that we have is going to always be bound up within a world. There's no denying that. There's no actual way to get away from it. If any of our ancestors, to think of this in like, and I think I already used this example, if any of our ancestors like at any point were like, screw you guys, I'm going to go live out in the woods alone, you wouldn't be here right now. Like that person wasn't going to make it. That's, that's really all that was going to happen. So to be an individual, to have a self, is to acknowledge that that self is never truly free of all of all forces, all societal and worldly forces. We are always bound up within it. It's a matter of finding that degree of self that respects our eventual end, that respects like what it means, what makes the most sense to our own individual Dasein, while also respecting existing in that world or in, in a world. So here we finally arrive at temporality. We ask, so what is the ground that gives Dasein, as care, its meaning? And the answer is really temporality. So how? How is that the case? Now to let itself come forward into its inauthentic self in throneness, Dasein is always attuned to the future. It must, and like, for Dasein to have come into existence, it was attuned to the future, a possible event at some point later that it could then become that it could then adapt to. And so it is then grounded in a knowledge of that future and therefore within temporality. So every one, every one of Dasein's movements and actions are geared towards the future. And so its past, that, that is its having been, comes from the future and therefore temporality. So every single thing that Dasein has done has been with an eye toward the future, specifically with an eye towards its possible end. And so every single past action informed by that same belief or informed by that same vision, the view of a, of a possible end, then every single moment, past, present, and future, are geared toward that future as temporality. And it is in this way that Dasein is intimately bound up with temporality where he says the temporality makes possible the unity of existence, facticity, and falling prey, and thus constitutes primordially the wholeness of the structure of care. So temporality, though, we have to be totally clear, isn't like a thing. It is something that temporalizes itself and therefore makes possible the multiplicity of the modes of being of Dasein. So there isn't like one temporality because that would be, we don't all live according to it. We all live our own temporal existence toward this one final point, toward death. And so in that way, temporality, although a universal experience as temporality, we all experience it like differently though, we must negate the negation. We are all existing temporal beings, but our specific ways of engaging with that temporality will differ from person to person. And so temporality houses within it the very possibility to diffuse it, to like fractalize it into many different parts that anyone can jump onto or that anyone will jump onto and then use in their own self-projection into the future and into a possible end, toward a possible end. And this is like, this is fundamentally to oppose the idea of time just moving like linearly. Because when we posit that the future determines the past, the present, 
we are unsettling the idea of time just moving linearly. And we are just being, we are just like subject to time. You know, we're just sitting in time and things are just moving past us and that's that. We have some degree, some command over it as Dasein in the world. In that temporality works for us in accordance with the wholeness of Dasein pointing towards its end among others all in the same boat pointing toward their end. And we all share in this experience and work together as care in that world. Whereas the linear conception of time is just like, oh, well, things in the past are past, future is not, you know, who knows what that is, and the present is right now. So that is like, a, Heidegger does not want us to think of temporality that way. In fact, he wants us to oppose that. That is the thinking of the they. That is the thinking of a they that is not prepared to confront its own possible death or to let the future determine its past, if that makes sense. I mean, that's a wacky thing to say, but I hope that's clear. Time instead for Heidegger is the unity of ecstasies of all moments that is in the past, present, and future on a finite continuum that ends with death. So the ecstasies is like a, you know, it's a term he'll use. Uh, I don't think I'll use it much more, but like, the ecstasies are like the past, the present, the future. These are the different ecstasies, different kind of moments of time, and then pointing towards this one thing as a way to trouble the linear idea of time. Because the linear idea of time opens up a whole other set of questions, like what, where does it start? You know, is there is there a beginning to time? How does that make sense? I mean, these are questions we'll never know the answer to, I imagine. I don't know, maybe we will. But like, where does time come from? Like, I mean, I, I have no idea. Wouldn't that have been cool, though, if I did? I just gave you the answer. Like, yeah, I had tea with God earlier, I did, and, and I know the answer to these things. I don't. Yeah, that puts us here into chapter four. Temporality and everydayness. So Dasein's understanding, that is, as knowing itself, as its own possibility, is in time. It exists in time temporally. Its resoluteness realizing its identity and its potential happens with an eye to the future. That is a kind of change in time or like something happening later in the future in time that we understand it. Now different parts of Dasein are drawn to different ecstasies in time where attunement is pointed to the having been whereas understanding is geared towards the future. So what does he mean by that? Well, when he talks about attunement, he's implying that we have some kind of ability to adopt and adapt to the world, to become attuned to it, which implies that we have some prior knowledge that permits us to do that, to actually fall prey to the world, to be thrown into it, and to adapt to it. And this points to a kind of history, a previous knowledge housed within us, housed within Dasein. Whereas understanding is geared toward the future because to properly understand, at least in this context, is to be resolute. And to be resolute means that you sit in anticipation of your eventual end. So this is because attunement is the thrownness, kind of a state that is recognizable as separate from previous state that is having been. So within existence or within our life, moods like fear and anxiety have different relationships to, diff to time to like the ecstasies uh, of time. Anxiety is geared toward the future. 
You know, you feel anxious about that possible death. You feel anxious of what you don't fully know what will happen. You feel fear toward the thing that's a little bit clearer, like you know what that is, right? Whereas fear is geared towards a lost present, and it is lost because we lose sense of a world when we are scared. And this goes way back in the book when, he, you know, anxiety is always towards something that we can't fully understand. And that's, that's why anx anxiousness and anxiety is so pernicious, because it's so difficult to point our finger as to be like, this is making me anxious. Because then once you figured it out, it's easy to work through it. At least this, you know, this is one therapy techniques. Once you talk through it and you actually figure out what you're anxious about, then you can actually start to manage it. Whereas fear makes you uncomfortable in your own world. You know, you feel like you have to have a certain degree of safety in certain spaces, but when a spider shows up, it's like, oh my God, I'm not wondering what I'm scared of. I know I'm scared of this spider and it's screwing up my whole space, my attachment to this world that I have crafted. So it is, you know, all of these are just different um, kind of, I don't know, qualifiers as to our different experiences in the world and how they attach themselves to our understanding of time and Dasein and care. So anxiety is pointed towards that future, anxious about what, we don't know what's going to happen really. We don't know what death is. We don't know what the future holds. And then fear is having lost the present. The present safety of world is no longer there because something threatens it. Now in all of this as well, falling prey, Heidegger suggests, finds its realization in the present, that is, as the existential meaning of being swept along. To fall prey is a, you know, a, a, an action that has happened to Dasein in its coming into the world. And similarly, in this case, discourse exists in, pre in the present, for as the present, of course, it can point to this... Uh, this thing in the past, that thing in the future that's going to come, and, and whatever. Discourse exists then in the present. Now, it's important here, like, he gives us all, he breaks these things down, he qualifies them, situates them in their dispositions, in their orientations towards the past or the future or the present. But it's important not to be, like, too rigid about these. Um, but to simply understand that temporality temporalizes itself completely in every ecstasy and is therefore grounded in the unity of the structures of care. So it is by looking at these examples and how they point to Dasein's existing in the world, structuring that world, and existing temporally, that we can understand that temporality is not this like linear thing that just points forward. It, you know, it's pointing backwards. The past determines the future. The future, the past, the present affects everything. Like, it's more like a swirling pool of different... I'm sure someone out there, Heideggerian, has a better analogy to use, but it's about like variations in temporality that are it's somewhat subjective or it changes from person to person or even within people from day to day, from uh, one mood to the next. So we must here eschew or get rid of linearity in favor of a temporality that temporalizes itself as a future that makes present in the process of having been. So this is to collapse all the categories, all the ecstasies of time into this broader recognition of the way that temporality temporalizes itself in order to permit these ecstasies to exist at all. So now we've added to our understanding of Dasein beyond just care 
and death, but also temporality, where temporality clears the way for Dasein to actually come into existence, to exist. So for something to exist and to be guided by care means that a making present has occurred, which means that there has been some ecstatic form of temporality. But what does it really mean to make something present? Well, really, it really means to make things relevant or open things up for relevancy in a world of other things so that it, it makes sense because you aren't going to make something present that's immediately like cast out from that setting. It means something has been added into like the world of commodities, as, as Marx writes about, not important, but to be added to it in a world that it makes sense, that makes sense to it and that it makes sense too. Now, it is in this way that a thing can lose its usefulness. If all things happen just in time, like that time just existed out there linearly, if things just happened in time without thinking about it as like temporality, temporalizing itself, or as existing as part of a world, if all things just happened in time as successive events, then there would be no opportunity to hold up and inspect the thing, to pause time almost. Like when our hammer breaks and it becomes hyper aware to us, we're like, wow, I never actually thought about this before. Like the hammer broke. In that moment, there's a kind of freezing of time going on and an ability to reflect on the significance of that event, which is very, like time is still moving. Let's, you know, let's be real. But in that moment, the way that time and our attachment to it changes reveals that temporality is a much stronger force than the linear conception of time because we do have some kind of a command over it. Not in like, we can't just willingly stop time, I don't think, <laughs> maybe someone can, but that we are intimately bound up with it. We shape it, it shapes us. And there's a, it's much more reciprocal in that way. And then in a somewhat abrupt turn, he, he looks at science and he considers science not as an engagement with facts or an effort to find like facts, or just discover things in the world, but he's interested in science as the pursuit of understanding things in their capacity to disclose themselves and then find them in them uh, a priori elements of their existence in the world. So the very possibility to find truth at all is what's interesting here for Heidegger and science, where to the scientists, it's often just about finding the truth, right? It's not like questioning, well, how is it even possible for a thing to have a truth to it that we can then discover unless there's there's something more going on about science? Like scientists aren't burdening. They don't give a shit about any of these questions, right? They, they don't care. They just want the truth of whatever they're looking at. So objects in this case for science to work at all must be thematized, which is to say understood contextually. There's no fact out there in the world that exists on its own. A fact is only given that status in a certain context. You know, there are small lies, big lies, and then statistics. It's kind of a funny joke. But the point being that statistics don't actually have any meaning on their own. It's the way that they are imbued with a certain uh, context, with a certain narrative. And we're always negotiating that. So even though, or this calls into question really, the validity of facts themselves, I'm not saying facts aren't valid. What I am saying is that those facts 
enter into or only make sense within a context within a world. So we see then that when objects are kind of not taken contextually or they're just treated like, oh, this is an ultimate sign of truth, like we don't have to account for the ways that our society or our context or our world participate in imbuing that thing with enough significance to have even searched for a truth there in the first place. Like without considering any of these things, what we are doing is just like objectifying the world. We're just making it like subject to our own violences, which is more of a thing, I think a little bit more apparent in his text, um, the question concerning technology when he talks about the ways in which we've like, we've just appropriated the world to such an extent that we can have stockpiles of resources that we've just accumulated for no reason, like it, there's no reason for it. But anyways, I digress. To even find truth in the world, in facts like that science finds, implies that we have given those facts a kind of, or those things we've been looking at, a kind of identity within a world that makes them worthy of discovering things, or makes them worthy of discovering, to finding the truth of. And Dasein is, in this case, the being that does this thematization, that contextualizes, that makes sense of these things. So a complete existential concept of science is determined when, in Heidegger's words, the basic concepts of the understanding of being by which we are guided have been worked out. The methods, the structure of conceptualizing the relevant possibility of truth and certainty, the kind of being of grounding and proof, the mode of being binding, and the kind of communication that has been established. So to properly analyze and interrogate what science means, a complete concept of science through Dasein, is to not look for like the truths in the world. I mean, that, that's what science does, and that's great. Let it go and do those things. But the more interesting question for what a science is, how it exists, how it actually does its thing, demands us questioning all of these things just mentioned, demands us to ask like, how do we actually imbue things with enough significance to go looking for truth there in the first place? How do the concepts like understanding, which kind of guide our very possibility of scientific discovery, how have they come to us? Where, do, where does that come from? Why do we do this? It's a very, I mean, I think it's a very question. Like, what is science really? What is the pursuit of truth really? Is it an expression of Dasein? And we lose sight of that because we become more enthralled with like the truths that we'll find. Like, is the creation of religion and gods, is this the same kind of expression? I mean, I don't know. But science is conducted in a world, right? And is therefore concerned with the world and interworldly things, things in the world. So the world, though, is transcendent insofar as it is bound with Dasein. It is presupposed for things to be but is only constituted as such with Dasein acting upon it. So, given this, like we know that Dasein and the world are intimately bound up with each other. Can you really have one without the other? Because Dasein has to enter a world, and then that world is shaped by Dasein. So the world, does it really just exist out there? You know, scientists are like, yes, we're just studying the world, you know, things in the world, blah, 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 we aren't actually considering in any detail the significance of that very act of pursuing knowledge or the world itself. So we have to ask, like, what is that? 
And now he takes on space, the question of space. So far, his idea about space has been dismissive, right? He's like, space, you know, creating worlds has nothing to do with space. It's all about de-distancing. It's about bringing things near, de-spatializing. So he views Dasein motivating de-spatiality, not spatiality. Similarly, different from Kant, temporality as encompassing past, present, and future as one is different from Kant's view of time as like time existing out there as like sensible object of the intuition or whatever, however he says it, <laughs> where, where it's like, well, for Kant, it's actually more complicated. Like Kant, I don't think gives us an answer as to whether time exists out there or if it's in our brains or both. Like it's not as though time is out there in the world and you know, you're born and have to learn it. You have an innate conception or innate ability to grapple with time to make sense of it. Uh, but in any case, so Heidegger says that space as de-distancing, not as just like being out there separating objects, as Kant says, Heidegger says that space as de-distancing produces temporality. Uh, that is in his words, bringing near and the estimating and measurement of distances within what is present and within the de-distance world are grounded in a, uh, in a making present that belongs to the unity of temporality. So for there to be space at all means that there has to be temporality. And temporality is the initial impetus or drive behind space being given any kind of significance at all that we'd find in Kant, for example. But like, I mean, you can't really have temporality without, I'm, I'm just on Kant's side here. Uh, you can't really have space without time or vice versa, but I, I get what he's saying. Anyway, so his point is to be that temporality actually permits the existence of space. It's not like they're both equally important here. And yeah, that'll push us into chapter five and the last episode I'll do. Wow, how exciting. We're getting to the end. Let me know if there's anything I got wrong or anything I excluded. I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, and you'll see videos I release every week, sometimes twice a week. How fun will that be? And yeah, on that note, take care.